I'd like to consider tonight this parable in Luke 18 of the unjust judge and the persistent widow. Decided to wait one week to consider another Lord's Supper sermon from the Catechism. And I was drawn to this passage in Luke 18 this week. I don't remember how it happened, but it's uh, quite a remarkable word Christ gives us, encouraging us towards prayer. I'd like to begin reading God's word at Luke 17, verse 20. Luke 17, verse 20, the word of the Lord. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah... So it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Here's our text. Luke 18, then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God, Nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect to cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, 
When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? God's holy word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, before your holy and enduring word, we come asking that you would cause to be preached truthfully, received with faith, and that by your word tonight, our prayer lives would be strengthened until the coming of our Lord Jesus, in whose name and for his glory we pray, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm sure we'd all confess tonight that praying is difficult, learning to pray is difficult. Keeping praying is even more difficult. We have many weaknesses. We are flesh. We have wandering minds. We have weak bodies. We have sinful desires. We often lack love and are not motivated to pray for our neighbors as we should. We have faith that wavers. We get overwhelmed with circumstances. We get busy in life. Praying is difficult. We need help in praying. But tonight, we're encouraged because Jesus loves to teach us and to help us to pray. This is one of his great tasks as our shepherd and our king. He leads us in prayer. Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, that great model. Jesus set us the example. He got up early in the morning. He prayed before meals. He prayed in great faith in his Father. Jesus has poured out his spirit who testifies in our hearts that we are God's children. And Jesus ministers to us through this text in Luke 18, teaching us to continue in prayer. Jesus is saying to us tonight that no one knows when Christ is coming, and it seems like a long way. It's, it doesn't come, it seems. It seems God delays. We might be tempted to give up praying. And Jesus says, persist in prayer. Because Christ will come at just the right time. He'll come suddenly and he will bring a mighty victory. He will deliver his people from the persecutors of this world and he will bring us into a glorious home. The parable we look at tonight in Luke 18 is only found in Luke's account and it seems to be closely connected to what we have in Luke 17 where Jesus tells of the return of the Son of Man, the return of the Messiah. And he says that the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. You can't lay eyes on it. But it's coming, and you shouldn't be dismayed when people say, well, he did already come, or he's over there. No, when he comes, it'll be like the flash of lightning. Every eye will see him. And when he comes, it will be suddenly, like in the days of Noah, when people just carried on with parties and life and thought nothing was going to happen until suddenly the waters came, or like in the days of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, continued in all of their sin and rebellion until well, they had no idea that a nuclear bomb was on the way to destroy them. In that day, when Christ comes suddenly, there'll be a great separation. One will be taken, another will be left. The righteous will be carried away, the wicked will be left to destruction. Or some would take it as, the wicked will be taken away to destruction, the righteous left. But however you see it, the point is a great divide. And it's not, by the way, a pretext for left behind. It's not about a pre-tribulation rapture here. But it's that when Christ comes at that grand consummating event of history, Judgment Day, there will be a great separation. And so believers, knowing that, are to be diligent in calling upon their Lord to the coming of that day. We, the Lord's people, are to be a people of prayer. It's our privilege, it's our duty, it's our calling. And as we face in this world so many enemies and 
hostilities, our hope is always to be set on the coming of our Messiah. And so I think the text is, first of all, a calling to labor and prayer for justice and the coming of Jesus. But then I think in a general way, it's an encouragement to all of our prayers. As we pray for all of our needs, and as we pray for the needs of this world, the conversion of hearts, a calling to persevere in prayer and not give up. We consider, first of all, the danger that Jesus sees, and then secondly, the promise that Jesus makes, and then thirdly, the question that Jesus asks. First of all, what's the danger that Jesus sees? Sometimes when we come to parables, you, you wonder, why did he tell this? What's he after? What's Jesus talking about as he gives us a, a story with a spiritual lesson to it? And in this case, as Matthew Henry says, the key is hanging at the door, or the key is in the lock, because you're given verse 1, which tells you exactly why he gave the parable. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. That's why he spoke it. Word translated, not lose heart, could be translated, become weary or tired. Or it could be translated, not lose heart, not despair, not become discouraged. I think our translations have it right, that Christ is not just saying we might get tired as we're praying, but but he's saying that we have this propensity to to grow discouraged. God doesn't seem to hear me. God's not answering my prayer. And if we could count all of our prayers that we've given off praying or If every petition that we offered up that fell to the ground, lifeless, had to have a burial spot, this world would be full of cemeteries, right? Because because so often we grow weary, we grow discouraged in our praying. Now, if there was somebody who should have grown discouraged in their petitioning, it was the widow in the parable. She's a, a woman in need. She's being oppressed. Somebody is out to get her, taking advantage. Maybe somebody's trying to steal her property through legal maneuvering. And she, a widow, she's the symbol of helplessness in Jesus' day. No protector to pressure the judge. No wealth by which to bribe the judge. She, she has nothing but the cause of righteousness. If anyone should have given up, it might have been her. Christians feel themselves at times in the same spot as this woman. We're harassed and threatened and attacked in different ways. Remember, we confess in the catechism that we have these three sworn enemies, right? We have, we have the world seeking to entice, to sin, or threatening us. We have the devil who tempts and who harasses, and we have our own sinful nature that, that would lead us astray. Our enemies never rest, and they seem to be provoked all the more as Christ's return draws near. The Bible seems to indicate that there'll be difficult days in the last days, that men go from wickedness to greater wickedness. We see, in many places, hostility towards the cause of Christ increasing, and we see those who have power and influence turning against the church. We see in our own land, companies, right, corporations taking now moral stands for wickedness, loving the things that God hates and promoting them and being angry at Christians for standing for righteousness. And we see legislators and judges who, who make no secret of the matter in terms of where they stand, enjoying and promoting things that are clearly hostile to the cause of Christ. 
And what are believers? They're not usually the power brokers in the world. We're not many who are, who are strong or influential in the world. Not usually the billionaires. Christians are often the weak in the world, not the movers and shakers. And it's tempting to feel like this widow. The, we're, the, we're the helpless. We're the helpless beneath the threats and the oppressions of the world. And maybe we feel like because we maybe can't get a hearing in this world, we also can't get a hearing in heaven. And Jesus says, no, that's not the case. As God's children, as God's people. And yet, though he tells us that so often in the word, we have this this temptation, don't we, that we, even with all the Lord has told us, might give up praying. Christ knows that. But you see, one of two things is always true. Either we, as we pray, we are a believer and we are being heard. Or we're living in unbelief and we're not being heard. The unbeliever has no right to expect God would hear. In fact, the psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not hear me. But if we're a believer, we're being heard, and yet we don't always know we're being heard. And we grow discouraged. The old bumper sticker, give prayer a try, we know it's not, it's not really the way it is. You can't just try out prayer. It's not like a new laundry detergent. It's, it's a commitment. It's a falling on your face before the Lord in trust and faith. And Christ longs that his people would, be, would, would glorify their Father by not doubting his promises. Jesus wants God to be glorified in our lives by having faithful prayer lives. He doesn't want us to meet God's love with skepticism and distrust. And yet Jesus knows that's often the case in our lives. We doubt him. We doubt whether he's here, whether he listens, whether he cares. But tonight, right off the bat, it's encouraging that Jesus speaks this parable knowing that men ought always to pray, and yet they often do lose heart. And even though Jesus knows that he's not ashamed to be called our brother, to call us brethren, he comes to minister to us. There's some commercials on the radio lately of a, somebody offering tax help. If you've got tax troubles and this accountant or a, I think it's an attorney, he, he wants to help you. He says, but the commercials I always find to be the most sympathetic. almost makes me want to call, even though I don't know of any tax troubles. But, but he, you know, he says things like, like, in all my 30 years, I've seen a lot of stuff. So, you know, whatever your problem is, he asks questions. Are your, are your unfiled taxes keeping you up at night? Are they making you irritable? He assures you there's a way out. Just pick up the phone. Just call him. Just find him. But we have you know, something far greater in Christ, our sympathetic high priest. He knows each one of us. He knows every one of us struggle to be faithful in prayer, to believe, to press on. And yet what does he do? He doesn't run from us shaking his head, but he... He comes near to minister to us, to train us in prayer. He's the one who will die for us when we are altogether prayerless, enemies of God. And now, having rescued us, is he going to desert us as we say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? No, he'll come and he'll minister to us. And he who was raised from the dead will raise our prayers from the dead. Teach us to pray and not lose heart. And if anyone's equipped to teach us to pray, it's our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus, who on the cross, who suffering hell, who in the darkest place in the world still prayed, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Still clung, still called out, still asked for God's help and vindication. And he's ready to help us to pray. So the danger Jesus sees is that we lose heart. Well, what's the promise Jesus makes? Let's consider that secondly. He tells a parable here about an ungodly judge, a man who holds a high office, who's calling before God, and man is to to punish evildoers and to protect the righteous. That's his duty. But this judge, he tells us himself, he's he's unjust, he's cruel, he's heartless. He, He says that I don't tremble before God. And I don't care what people think. I don't care about their criticisms or their censure of my life. It doesn't matter to me. All that matters to me is myself and my own pleasure. And then there's a widow who's in need. She's being harassed, being threatened. She has no form of protection. She runs to the judge, and he sends her away. She comes back and petitions him, and he sends her away. She comes back and entreats him, and she, he sends her away. This apparently goes on for a while, and then finally he says, you know, I don't usually do this kind of thing, but she's going to wear me out. All right, I will take action for her. And Jesus says then, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect to cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? If a wicked judge finally gave justice to a widow, won't the Lord avenge his people who cry out to him. God knows his people are not well suited to live in a wicked world. God knows his people are marked out for troubles as Christ was. And if they hated Jesus, they will hate his people. God knows that. And so we see it. Some of you see it at work. You face the, the tension and the hostility. Some of you in your neighborhoods. All of us, if we... Read Voice of the Martyrs or any such thing. We see it time and again, right? Some man disappears. Wife doesn't know where her husband is. Some man gets beaten. Some pastor gets killed. Some woman is harassed and her property's taken away. Families are kicked out of villages. Their home gets taken over by someone else. A young lady who gets baptized, her Muslim father tries to kill her. It goes on and on and on and on. And these cry out to God, and the church cries out for the persecuted church. And will God do nothing? That's impossible, Jesus says. It's impossible. Now, we have to understand the point of the comparison here. Sometimes, sometimes parables are misunderstood, or, or we draw wrong doctrines from them if we, if we mislocate the point. And here, the point is not that the father is just like the unjust judge. And if you would just pull on him some more, even though he doesn't want to, he'll finally act for you. That's not the point. He doesn't have to be dragged to the place of fulfilling his responsibilities. There are some who treat God that way, right? Who think just so many rituals, so many ceremonies, so many acts of self-atonement, and finally will make God act. But if that's how we view it, that's a worship of a pagan God. That's not the God of the Bible, the triune God of Scripture. Because the God of Scripture is not compelled to act by anything we do. And on the contrary, he has acted for us despite everything we have done. 
He sought us when we were opposed to him. He, he died for us when we were still sinners. He called us to himself when we were hostile to him. He loves us, though we've often been unfaithful to him. So Jesus is not saying that God's an unjust, cruel, heartless tyrant whom you can compel to act. But he is saying if an unjust, cruel tyrant could be compelled by the petitions of a widow, won't the God who is good and glorious act for his own dear children? Now, Matthew Henry, the famous Puritan commentator, if you don't have his commentary, you might want to get it. It's the best one-volume commentary there is, probably, if you like reading small print. But he compiles for us a bunch of the greater-thens of this parable. Notice the contrast. Number one, eight of them. There's eight of them here. I think you had nine. I gave you, I'm giving it you eight, and you don't have to memorize them all. Just, just grab one or two. It'll hold you for the week. Number one, the widow was a stranger to the judge and totally unimportant to him, but Jesus calls us the elect of God. Right? It's glorious. Of all the things Christ could say to convince you that your prayers would be heard, what a, what a marvelous thing to say. Shall God not avenge his own elect? Chosen before the creation of the world in Christ Jesus. Precious to God. Number two, the widow approached alone with her petition. But we storm heaven and the throne of grace with the great multitude, right? All the saints together calling upon their God, united in the name of Christ. Number three, the widow came to an unjust judge, but we come to a righteous father. The unjust judge cared nothing about God or about man, but God cares about his own righteousness. He's not going to deny himself, and he cares about his people to whom he's made pledges. Number four, she came to the judge with her own cause, but we come to God with his cause. Because he's told us to cry out against injustice and to cry out for deliverance, and so we can pray, arise, O Lord, and plead your own cause. Number five, she had no friend to speak for her to articulate her case, to help press her need. But we have an advocate at God's right hand, our great intercessor who lives always to intercede for us and to save to the uttermost. Number six, she came to the judge on her own account with no promise of justice, but we come to God according to the word of his own son, who even in this passage is now urging us to pray. And promising that if we ask, we will be given. And telling us that we are forgiven of all our sins through his blood. Number seven, she had access to the judge only at some times, but we may appeal to God day and night, whenever and wherever we are. And number eight, her constant petitions wearied the judge and might have as easily provoked his anger at her and the dismissal of her case as it might provoke him to give a relief. But in our case, we come to a God who's eager to hear his children and takes delight in their prayers through Christ's merit. And so, our case is infinitely greater. And that's the point of the parable. How much more won't the Father hear his own elect? 
Yet with all of that, we have to know that God is not compelled to answer to our watch or to our calendar. God keeps his own time. God may seem to delay to act, and he often gives the appearance of not hearing us to test our faith, to try our commitment, and to teach us to persevere in faith. John Calvin writes that Jesus is teaching believers to continue in prayer, quote, till they at length draw from him what he would otherwise appear to be unwilling to give. Not that by our prayers we gain a victory over God and bend him slowly and reluctantly to compassion, but because the actual facts do not all at once make it evident that he graciously listens to our prayers. God gives the appearance of not listening. God gives the appearance of not responding. God gives the appearance of indifference so that we might learn to live by the promises of his word. Jesus says, I tell you, verse 8, that he will avenge them speedily. It's remarkable, isn't it? He's just told us about the delay of his coming, about about these, these days in which it will look like he's nowhere to be seen, like the days of Noah, to the eyes of the unbeliever. He's, he's nowhere, he's nowhere to be seen, to the church, long in prayer, losing heart. It seems like he's nowhere to be seen. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he's going to avenge his church speedily. It doesn't mean he's coming tomorrow, necessarily. But it means that when the moment comes, the God-appointed moment comes, there will be no delay. When God says to his son, now is the moment, then with lightning speed he will be here to bring full deliverance to his people. Though God gives the appearance of delaying or not hearing, God has a set time. A time in which perfect justice will be meted out. And not a single enemy opposed to the Lord and his people will go unpunished. It's not going to be disappointing justice like we so often see in our world. And we think, oh boy, I, I thought they were finally going to get him. I fi- finally somebody's going to pay. I thought, no, when Christ comes, God will avenge us speedily. And with full force. You see... Gelden Heist puts it like this in his commentary. When the fullness of time has arrived, God will suddenly and without delay put an end to the distress into which his chosen ones will be plunged by a hostile and evil world. Yes, he will. The kingdom will come. So the promise Jesus holds out is that God will certainly answer the prayers of his people. His own people, as elect, will not go unheard. But the very thing they've prayed for and now prayed for across centuries and still plead for in heaven, the the souls of the martyrs will be answered perfectly and speedily when God says now is the time. If only we don't give up praying. And that brings us to the last point tonight, the question that Jesus asked, the question 
verse 8, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Well, Christ is not suggesting that there will be no faith on the earth. He's already said that the elect cry out. He's already promised that the gates of hell will not prevail. Christ will have a church when he comes. There will be always a remnant of people who call upon his name in prayer. But what Jesus is doing here, you see, is turning the question. We often put God in the witness stand and bring our questions to him. How long, Lord? When will you act, Lord? Are you hearing me, Lord? Why this, Lord? Jesus says, he's got all under control. It's going to avenge you speedily. Okay. Then Jesus turns the question around. But will he find faith? Reminds me, as I was studying this week, it reminded me of Mark 9, where, where the father, remember, he, Christ is on the Mount of Transfiguration. The father brings a demon-possessed son. The disciples can't cast out the demon. Jesus comes down the mountain, says what's going on. Asks the father, how long has, has this been happening to your son? All these convulsions of the demon and the father says from childhood and he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him but if you can do anything have compassion on us and help us the father says and Jesus says if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes Father sees the disciples couldn't cast out the demon. He says to Jesus, if you can, Jesus says, no, you got the wrong question. No, let me relocate the question for you. Can you believe on me? Can you trust in me? The question is not whether God's going to answer the prayers of his people. The question is not whether God is hearing our prayers day and night. The question is, will we persevere in prayer to the coming of Christ? When Christ comes, how much faith will he really find on this earth? As Christ comes down from heaven, what will he discover here below? Will it be in America, a church that's watching the news, caught up with political answers? Is that all the church is busy with? Will it be in America, people with a pile of insurance policies and filling out more of them? Trusting in that? Will, will it be in America people who trust in medical science and doctors to deliver them? Will it be in America people who are just hoping to get the right people elected and then we'll have justice? Is that what Jesus will find when he comes upon the earth? Will we find the people on their knees crying out and pleading to the only one who can bring justice, true and complete justice, as important as all those other things may be, and whatever means and instruments they are, the Lord gives us. I don't deny that. But are we caught up with the right thing, and is our hope in the right thing? You see, Christ is pressing each one of us. If Christ were to have come this past week, what would he find in your life? Would he find one clinging to him in faith and prayer, waiting upon the Lord with all hope and trust? And Christ's question points ahead, doesn't it? 
Those words were spoken 2,000 years ago. How many generations haven't had to learn to pray? In order for Christ to find faith upon the earth when he comes, then every generation must learn to pray. It's important for boys and girls and young people, for parents who would teach them, that we must be a praying people and a people who teach the next generation to pray if Christ is going to find faith upon the earth. So what a Savior we have, brothers and sisters, that he knows us through and through. We can all raise our hand, yes, I lose heart in praying. And then Christ says, but look, here's the promise. God will avenge you speedily. He hears your prayers. And even an encouragement here, not only for prayers of of justice, right, in terms of Christ's final coming, but I think there is embedded in here an encouragement for all of our prayers. There's not a blanket promise that every unbeliever we pray for is going to be saved, but there is the promise in the word that God will save. So we ought to keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying for loved ones. Keep praying for our neighbors. Keep praying for our politicians and those over us. Then there's the challenge at the end. What about you? What about in your life? What about in your house? What will Christ find when he calls you home? What will Christ find when he returns to the earth? Will he find one who continues to hold on to him? Why is Jesus asking that? Because that's what he wants to find. Because that's what he's committed to making of us. Oh, there are some who will be apostate, who will give up praying and who will give up faith. But Christ will preserve his elect to the end. So let the Lord work in you tonight by his word. Let him lift you up by his scriptures. Let him exhort you. And where we have failed, let us repent and repent again and again of our prayerlessness. But let us always come back and begin again because his grace and his mercies are always new. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the many callings in your word to continue in prayer. We thank you for our Lord Jesus who teaches us to pray and for the spirit who who works so tirelessly in our hearts. Father, we acknowledge before you we do fail you. We grow discouraged. We grow undisciplined. We put trust in ourselves and do not know how needy we are. Help us, oh, Lord, to take up our petitions, to cry out with all the church, to see the injustice that's done to our brothers and sisters. Help us, O Lord, to be faithful in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for assuring us. Thank you for our Savior, who's taken away our guilt and has opened the gates of heaven. In his name, O Lord, let us come in. In his name we pray. Amen.